the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, 21 through 31. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble, to whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint." A reading from the book of First Corinthians nine, sixteen through twenty-three. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. Then I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law, God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings.
We're reading from the book of Mark 1, 29 through 39. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. This is the word of the Lord. So we're in the fifth week after Advent. Uh, which means this is, I'm sorry, after Epiphany, which means uh, this is the last week after Epiphany, as in the Sunday is the fifth week after Epiphany, the, which is the sixth week. The next week after that is the Transfiguration, uh, which is really the last week in Epiphany, which is the seventh week, or sixth week after Epiphany, which is the seventh week. So if you thought the Hebrew way of numbering things and doing things was confusing, the early church making the calendar was even more confusing. Had to be more mature. Uh, so let's pray and then we'll get started. Uh, Father, we, we just humbly come to hear your word. We pray that your word would be um, spoken, you would be glorified, that you would lead us deeper into communion with you so that worship would be more real tonight, that we would have hearts full of gratitude uh, and just be able to come to you humbly through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So as usual, we're skipping our psalm passage, except for one, we'll read one verse in our psalm. Um, but how I want to do this tonight is uh, Mark, 1 Corinthians, then end in Isaiah, because you can tell by the notes on the outline, there was more thought into Isaiah. Um, I actually just want to make a, a kind of a quick note um, with our gospel reading in Mark. We're not going to spend too much time there. Um, I just want to just kind of compare and look at what Jesus does with uh, Peter's mother-in-law. Um, I always kind of like to make a joke that was like maybe Peter was a little disappointed that his mother-in-law got better. <laughs> but we don't have any indication of that. It's just a modern... <laughs> Uh, mother-in-law joke. Um, but anyways, Peter obviously brought Jesus to his mother-in-law, so he had expected something. But um, I just want to kind of give and take that passage of just, we're not going to read it again, but um, 
Jesus is preaching, healing, casting out demons. He goes to Peter's mother-in-law's house, heals her. And what does she instantly do? She serves, uh, right? And then Jesus goes on preaching and teaching and healing. Uh, I do like, we do see this other, other, another side note is we do see this at other times in the gospel where Jesus is in the synagogue, just like last week, and he's casting out demons from people who attend the synagogue. Um, So there was uh, clearly something manifest there and uh, either the people in the synagogue had put up with it, they knew about it, or they couldn't do anything um, as a possible understanding. But either way, that it's just a reminder that, you know, church isn't where demons can't go. It's not like demons are, you know, exempt from walking through the door because they're uh, uh, not welcome. Um, because they don't walk through doors. They walk through people. You open up the doors. You are the doors. And so anyways, um, but, but Peter's mother is an example of a reception of the gospel in another. We often don't think about that of these people. What they were called to do is like follow Christ. Many of them got healed, got demons cast out. They were fed. They were taught, right? Paradigms and ways of thinking. And Jesus was te- te- teaching them truth. But everybody was then called to serve in some capacity. You see the 12 disciples were sent out to teach and cast out demons and the 72. And we kind of, um, I don't know if you guys do this, but I do this all the time. I think, well, that's like, those are like the professionals. And they really were the professionals, <laughs> right? Those were the 12 and the 72 that Jesus had specifically discipled for and commissioned for that work. But we see the framework of all of the epistles and the gospels was that was everybody's work. It's not just a, um, as we look in 1 Corinthians, it's not just Paul's obligation to preach the gospel, uh, but it's the same as ours. And, uh, you know, I've been kind of on this rethinking in my own way, like good works and what we do as a community and how we look to the outside world and uh, just the example of good works we see in the Gospels, like the book of Titus. If you know about Crete, it was, uh, everyone, there was nothing good that, you know, it was just detestable liars, drunkards, and Paul affirms that. And so he appoints elders in Crete to do what? To encourage the people to do good works, to receive the gospel, be part of the church, and just do something. Like, go out and let your works be known for you. And so... Um, Peter's mother-in-law is an example of a gospel reception. She's not just healed physically. She's, uh, um, she's in a way, she's now serving Christ. She didn't get healed and say, oh, thanks. Now I'm going to please get out of my house. Your time. Thanks for coming. Uh, see you later. Uh, I got what I wanted, right? Um, we don't have any. Uh, we'll probably see in the next few years some evangelical evangelical. Uh, prequel to Peter's mother, and it'll have a whole backstory on her, <laughs> uh, like like what we do with all of the uh, things, Star Wars and stuff. Um, but the but the point is, she instantly started healing. Her heart would have had to been filled with gratitude and thanksgiving, and she lived that out with good works. So. Um, that's really all I want to say about our Mark passage. And so 1 Corinthians 9, 16 through 23, um, I'm going to turn there just so we could read a little bit. 
Okay, this is our go-to Bible verse for why you shouldn't offend your brother or sister in Christ, right? We, uh, why, why you should be uh, careful of how you conduct yourself against new Christians or people who might be offended, right? So as we open up in these passages in, in 16, um, Paul says, for I preach the gospel that gives me, uh, for I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, right? Just because he preaches the gospel, that doesn't mean he could put himself on a higher platform or because he's an apostle or because he plants churches or because he's one that preaches the gospel that he's saying that there's no reason to boast, right? That's not in itself a reason to boast. Um, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel, right? Other, in other passages, Paul says, I don't remember if it's in... Uh, if it's, it's in one of his epistles, I forget it, uh, what it is. I didn't write down the reference. But uh, he says, like, if someone works, their wage, it's in Romans, if someone works, their wages aren't a gift. It's what's due to them. There's an obligation. And Paul's saying he is under an obligation because of his calling in Christ to preach the gospel. And I don't think that's any different than you and me. I don't think we see any other precedent in Scripture. We see that in First Thessalonians, where Paul commends them to, to preach the gospel and to do things. It should be a regular obligation, and we should think about it as that, that we are to preach the gospel. And obviously, this falls in line with Epiphany in our season of, of revelation, of Christ revealing himself. Um, most of our readings have done something, had something to do with preaching the gospel. That should be an ongoing expectation, obligation for every Christian. And we've talked about multiple times that we preach the gospel in our workplace, what we say, how we live, all of that. Um, but that gives them no reason for boasting. Uh, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel, for if I do this of my own will, I have a, a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. And so one of the reasons why it's an obligation for everybody to preach the gospel in some capacity, um, I believe that's in lifestyle evangelism and in proclamation evangelism, not meaning everyone has to be a street preacher and go out to the street corner. That's for some, but everybody is, is called to do some form of verbal um, evangelism, whether that's... Uh, and, and here we see a specific example of what Paul's saying of he's not preaching the gospel on a street corner is not the reason why he's um, uh, this is the one about we did the one about not eating, eating meat last week um, just about uh, I don't think it actually gives any context of what it is uh, it's just saying in verse 20 to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews to those under the law I became as one under the law so he's not giving a, a specification like in um, what is it, Second Corinthians 14, or whatever it is, uh, or maybe it's, I'm sorry, just First Corinthians 8, uh, food offered to idols. He's not, he's, he's expounding and, and building on top of his last argument of not just meat, not just uh, food or drink, but he's saying he actually changed his whole lifestyle so that he would have an opportunity to preach to these people, right? And so, um, real quickly, Paul's handling of the law, he says that he became as, uh, to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being, 
uh, myself under the law that I might win those under the law. Meaning, um, not that he's not under the law of God, that the Ten Commandments don't apply to him. He's meaning those ceremonial Jews who are still under um, and uh, under ceremonial sacrifices, right? He even uh, shaved Timothy's head to send him to the Jews, right, in the temple, but they still got mad uh, for other reasons uh, because he, he was a Gentile. And, and so he's not saying he's not obligated under God's law. He's not, he understands the gospel that he's not obligated and he's not going to offer sacrifices. He doesn't have to wear uh, certain vestments to be a priest and things like that. That's the law he's talking about because he later says to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So there's like three different laws going on. There's like the law that the Jews are under. There's the law of God that he's not outside of. And then there's like the law of Christ. And so what are those, uh, right? Like what's the difference between the law of God and the law of Christ? Is that like, um, is like the law of Christ just like love and acceptance and do whatever the heck you want and, and we'll still accept you or we'll still accept you, but by no means, it's the law of Christ. The law of God is that, again, we looked in past uh, Wednesdays about the law, the, the covenant on Mount Sinai versus the covenant of Mount Zion. The law, the actual obedience aspect, you were still called to the same thing. The, the covenant under Zion empowered you to do the law. All right, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, right? And so Paul's making a clear point um, of he's, he's not just going to not do things and avoid things like in chapter eight to not offend people because that's morally his obligation, which it seems to be he's saying it is morally his obligation, right? I don't think there's any disagreement there, but it's, it's for evangelism. It's always for something else so I can gain them, so I can preach the gospel, so I can um, welcome them in or something, right? So that he can have a chance to speak to them and he's very intentional about it, right? Uh, I notice a lot of people, and my, I myself do certain things like, well, I won't drink around these people because I don't want to offend them and, and whatever or something. Um, and I'm thinking more in terms of moralistically, I just need to do this so that uh, they don't get offended. And when uh, they leave the church, it's not my name that's thrown out. <laughs> they don't pick my name from that hat or something because uh, I don't want to get in trouble. Right? That's like a, a moralistic, that's caring more about myself than it is about them. And Paul's got a mindset that seems to be, I'm not going to do it because I just don't want to offend them. I don't want to offend them because I love them and I want to offer them Christ. And I think that's a huge difference. Um, it's that being intentional. Uh, it's that, you know, the, the, it was it Galatians or Ephesians? I think it's Galatians uh, where Paul's saying, you know, the days are evil. Um, so Ephesians 5, 16, you know, about being intentional because the days are short, right? Um, and so Paul knows he's very relational, right? This is a very relational passage. He's saying uh, that we're not just moral creatures, but that people actually before they can receive your teaching, they have to receive you, right? Um, we all know the logical fallacy of, um, of ad hominem is that, uh, that if 
Kyle tries to tell me a point and, and prove something to me, and I say, well, Kyle, you're a jerk. Like, <laughs> that doesn't prove anything. That doesn't mean his statements are true or false. That just means I don't like him. <laughs> right? That's not a, lo it's a logical fallacy called an ad hominem. Um, and Paul, Paul knows these things. He's not using that terminology, but he's saying he knows that in order to receive a teaching from somebody, you have to receive the person, right? Uh, the Pharisees didn't receive Jesus' teaching because they didn't receive him, right? That makes sense? And so uh, I commend everybody as I've been kind of rethinking, especially in this time of epiphany and um, just good works and how that's a light to the world and and actually being the light and the salt of of and actually proclaiming the gospel or looking for those opportunities to talk with your friends or your coworkers or to actually do something to speak the gospel, not just constantly try to do lifestyle evangelism, but to act in such a way towards those outside that they don't reject you before they reject your teaching. And so that's something I commend just everybody to, is to rethink uh, how we can do that better, and, that, and you should do that. And so let's spend the rest of our time in Isaiah. Mm -hmm. Isaiah 40. I can't remember. I've got such a short-term memory. I can't remember if we did Isaiah 40 last week or if it was several weeks ago where we did the beginning of Isaiah. I, and I didn't look it up either. So, um, we're almost going to go verse for verse in this. So we're going to start at verse 21. Once I find it in my Bible. Hey, it helps to be in the right book. This is Jeremiah. That's not... I was like, this doesn't look right. I know I had more notes in my Bible than this. Okay. Verse 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Right? And so one of the things that... Um, uh, he, the Lord's going to use this, this verbiage again here towards the end of our reading... But he uses this quite frequently, actually. Because like, he's asking them. Like, this is like, he, it's almost like he's expecting them to know. Did you not, did you not know this information? Have you not heard? Um, and what we get into is information that you could learn that it's not just for the people of God. These are things that everybody in, created, uh, in creation could understand from the created order. Or from just looking at history or looking at creation. And so, verse 22, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Right? It's the Lord. We get that picture of, of this is almost like a Genesis 1 versus Genesis 2 passage. The Lord uses this imagery a lot. This is God's way out there. This is the Lord of creation that has created everything. He sits in the heaven. He, he wraps the stars and the curtain of heaven like a robe around him. That's God in heaven, right? We often look at Genesis 1 or we just, if we stop here, we think in deistic terms that God's far away. He's that big guy in the sky. The big guy, we call him, right? 
right? Verse, um, verse 23 is where it gets a little bit more personal. Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness, right? God is sovereign. I'm going to read verse 24 to you. Scarcely they are planted, speaking of the rulers and princes, scarcely some. That's not a lot. There's not a lot of rulers of the earth, actually, uh, especially when compared to how many people there are. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. They don't last a long time. Their influence doesn't last. They don't last. Their nations don't last. Thank God. When he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Right? That should remind you, um, I remember this. This was a, uh, when I started to be converted to Christ. Isaiah 40 verse 8 talks about uh, the grass withers and the flower fades. Um, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. But verse 7, the grass withers, the flowers fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely people are grass. And so um, Isaiah 40 is commonly used all throughout Epiphany and Christmastide and Advent um, because it's, a, it's clearly prophesying and heralding the coming of the Christ. And so uh, he's saying not just the people are like when the Lord just blows on them, like, you're done, you're dead. There goes all of you from history. No one's going to remember you. It's over. You're extinguished. You're not even like, uh, uh, like we do. Um, I was just telling Noel, I was like, hey, when I die, I just want you to like light a candle in my funeral and then just blow it out. Like he's gone. He's, it's over. He is no more. Uh, at least here on earth. Just, hey, it's over. We do it, all, we do it at our birthdays anyways. <laughs> Why not do it at a funeral? Right? All of those birthday candles are looking forward to our funeral when our light will be extinguished. So why not? Um, and so the Lord just, even princes of the earth, these are, think of, like just take these passages for a minute sometime this week and think about like what the Lord is saying. Like we live in a world where everybody thinks in terms of who's ruling, who's our mayor or our governor or our uh, president or who's part of the parliament or our whatever, because that's how we live. We hear about it every day. That's, that's politics. We live in a society that is politically driven, um, and, and rightfully so. But the Lord's saying, like, there's just a few of them. They're planted very scarcely. There's not a whole lot of them compared to the number of people. And, when he, and none of their influence, none of them get planted deeply, right? Nothing that these people do apart from the Lord's work, which isn't a lot, from what I've seen in history and in modern times, uh, is, is planted very deeply, right? Because there's, he ends up talking about there's another one coming that will be planted and fill the earth. But it's, this is the Lord who sits in heaven. He just blows out kings and princes and presidents and today they're here, tomorrow they're gone. They won't be remembered. How many, we've had 40, 42? 46, 42, 46 presidents. See how much I know or care. We've had 46 presidents in our nation. How many can you remember? Can you name all 46? Probably not. I can name at least two. Um, and Benjamin Franklin doesn't count. He wasn't a president. 
right? Like, even when you think of our own nation in terms of its short birth just a couple hundred years ago, we don't remember all of them. We don't know all their, we don't remember their influence. A lot of their influence is gone. It's to be gone. They're dust, right? So moving on, uh, with that being said, in verse 25, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like them, says the Holy One? Why would we compare God to these people, like these princes, right? We often do that and we compare God to, we say God is like this or God is like this, and, but he's not. He's holy. He's like none of them. Why would we compare God in such a way that they resemble the princes, presidents, or rulers of the earth, right? God says, why, why, we, why are you comparing me to them? Because they're here today, gone tomorrow. I'm not like them, right? He says, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, who brings out their host by number or the stars, calling them all by name, by greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. And so this is now like God saying, I've numbered all of the stars. I know everything in creation. Um, this is a time where, just to give you a little context, where Israel, uh, I can't remember exactly on in Isaiah 40, but um, I can't remember if half the kingdom had gone into exile or not by now. Uh, but it was prophesied coming. They're, they're going into exile, right? Think of, uh, it was written in the time of Hezekiah, Ahaz, looking at Isaiah 1, Uzziah, Jotham, uh, and the kings, these are kings of Judah. And so ever since David, Solomon builds the temple, and then every other king is just like back and forth, back and forth, wars, splits. You get a couple good ones here and there that restore some things. Uh, you know, you got like some kings that were like, oh my God, why, maybe we should stop killing our babies on the mountaintops. And, and some, some of them are like, oh my God, maybe we should follow the law of God. And they still kill their babies on the mountaintops. Uh, and they don't, none of them takes it far enough. And none of them have lasting influence, right? We see the same thing today. Uh, not to comment on any political spectrum, but we have, uh, we do this all the time. Our politicians do this. It's part of politics is we get one president, they make all these executive orders and decrees, and the next president comes in, and they're from a different party. So we're going to say, that's no longer there, and then they're in party, and then the next party comes in, and they say, well, we're going to revamp this thing, and we're going to do it. And it's just constantly back and forth. And none of it sticks. <laughs> none of it has any long-lasting effect. Why would we compare or think that the Lord is like one of those princes? The Holy One is going to have uh, complete control, long-lasting influence. His influence is going to be planted deep, another way to say. But more importantly, we get to verse 27, and he says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? And they're saying, this isn't like, not saying, like, I've been doing so many things, why doesn't God see my righteousness? They're saying, why do I suffer so much and God's not helping me? Why do we keep, as a nation, getting tossed back and forth? 
Why do we go into exile and God isn't looking? God isn't watching. He doesn't hear our plight. We've been crying out like the psalmist in, in Psalm 69. It's one of my favorite psalms. He says he's drowning. There's no foothold. He's been swimming or doggy paddling for days or something. And he says he's crying out that he's losing his voice and he's so weary that he's going to drown. He says, why, oh God, why aren't you answering me? And that's what, what the same type of thing that God's bringing against Israel is saying, why are you saying my way is hidden from you? Don't you know I'm the, the God that created all the heavens? Don't you think I see your suffering? That's what he says in verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Right? Here's another. Don't you understand? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him uh, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. And so he's saying like, I see your suffering. I see your plight. It doesn't go unnoticed. It's not this, we saw that God brings out that he's the God of Genesis 1 where he creates everything and puts everything in motion. But the God of Genesis 2 meets with them in the cool of the day. He's not far away. He sees their suffering. He sees their plight. He hears their cries. It's not as if he's far off, right? It's not as if he hasn't, um, in, in every way, in a providential way, brought about their suffering in a certain sense. That he brought, he knew, he prophesied that, hey, you're going to go into exile. These kings are going to come and take you and, and because you've forgotten the law of your God, you're, I'm going to forget you and you're going to go into exile. And then you're going to cry out and I'm going to respond. Right? That happens over and over. And verse 31 uh, is really the clutch here, right? You know, because everyone's going to faint and grow weary. He says, even youths, even that teenage church kid who's got too much energy and bounces off the walls, <laughs> he's going to eventually run out of energy, right? Um, if you ever, side note, if you ever looking for Bible passages to be funny with people, you get like the young kids who are like, well, I'm going to do great things and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going forever. You can say, well, it says even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. You'll get tired. But anyways, uh, I often just look through the Bible for those passages to uh, make fun of people or something. But anyways, so it culminates here in verse 31. He says, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength, right? Isn't that temptation in the suffering to continue to say, you don't see my suffering, forget you. You didn't respond, forget you, right? That's the temptation, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Right? The Lord doesn't give strength to the kings and to the princes and say, but those people who rule, they're the ones that are really important and they're going to make the change and they're the ones that are closer to God. So I'm going to give more power and strength and influence to them. He doesn't say that. He says, those who are suffering and cry out for plight 
and wait on the Lord, those are the ones that, that I'm actually noticing and those are the ones I'm going to pay attention to and those are the ones I'm going to give strength to. Right? Those are the ones that are going to be renewed. It's not a, a, like what we see in the world is the, the rich get richer, the powerful get more powerful, the elite get more elite. It's not, it doesn't work that way in God's kingdom. Right? It's not, he doesn't give more power to the powerful, he gives more power to the faithful. Right? We see that in Matthew um, eleven twenty nine, where Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right? Lay your burdens, like, uh, I'm going to try to finish it without looking at it, or while I'm flipping. You know, um, John Luke can probably finish it. Uh, uh, take my yoke upon me and take my teaching, and I will give you rest, right? Um, same thing, right? In 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Everybody knows the account of, uh, of Paul when he was called up to the third heavens. He saw a, a revelation of Christ again. And Paul had been dealing and cried out, it says he cried out to God three times. So if you haven't prayed at least three times and you're suffering, then you're not praying, <laughs> praying enough. Uh, so Paul cried out three times to God uh, because a messenger of Satan was harassing him to keep him from becoming conceited. Right? There was a point to that suffering. It says, three times I pleaded, this is in Second Corinthians 12, verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, what? He said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says, that's what Jesus said to Paul, right? My grace is sufficient for you. That's all you need. And my power is made perfect in weakness. When Paul's weak, therefore Christ is strong, right? We see the same thing in, in 1 Corinthians when he's saying the, um, the more mature person that eats meat uh, or could do something more mature or take that liberty, but he makes himself weak for the sake of the weak, that's where Christ's power lies, Right? Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Right? Verse 10, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Right? That's the Christian life. Weakness. Strength in Christ is humility. Weakness. You see the same thing in Isaiah 40 that they're brought under this plight. The weakness is that there is real suffering. There is real pleadings. There is real crying out to God. But they're not called to, uh, what are they called to do? But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Right? Those who, that's like where real faith comes in, where there's trials, there's temptations, there's, uh, if you haven't had, if you've been a Christian more than a week and you haven't had an and gone deep enough with the Lord where you're like, God, you don't even hear my prayers like I've been praying about this forever. It's been a week, and you didn't answer my prayers. Are you even listening? Then uh, you might be, con- I'd be worried if you didn't have that experience within a week of being a Christian. Uh, uh, because that's where the Lord brings us to, to find strength, to cry out to him in times of need, that we'd find uh, grace in his mercy seat is what, Hebrews 4 says that we are drawn near to him. Those who wait on him, draw near to him, continue crying out, 
uh, and find, find strength in him. Uh, so with that, uh, let's close in prayer and worship. Lord, we pray that you would enable us and empower us to, to cast our burdens in a real sense upon you, to wait on you, to long for you, to expect you, to be made uh, uh, perfect in our weakness, to be made powerful in our weakness, that we would boast in our weakness so that your power would, in a real sense, rest and work through us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.